Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I intend to speak on the subject of time today. I've had a few people ask me about time and time management and how do you stay motivated and how do you stay directed towards the right thing. So I kind of wanted to step back from that topic a little bit and just say, how does the Bible speak about time? And what are we to do with time? And what are some principles of time that maybe we can leave this place today either having learned or being affirmed in if you've heard it before. The house of God is intended to do both of those things. Many of the things you hear in church, if you've been a church member for a long time, are things you've heard before. But we need to hear them again and be constantly reaffirmed in them. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we have a growing body of young people in the church. And that means that we need to make sure that we're covering a healthy dose of Christian fundamentals of the church in our preaching. We can't leave first principles behind. If you say, well, if anything, the old Baptists, they believe in election and predestination. Everybody knows they believe in election and predestination. Well, that's why we hate those people. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of one of those things. That if, if anybody knows anything about the old Baptists, they might know we believe in election and predestination. And you might say, well, we don't really have to preach on that anymore because we all know we believe that. Well, that's not true. We still do need to affirm those things. So it's important that we restate fundamental things. And maybe time is a fundamental thing, though it may not be one that's as prominent in our preaching as election and predestination and the everlasting covenant and tulip doctrine and those sorts of things. So the principles of time that I want to put before you that come out of the Word of God today are these. Time is a finite commodity. You don't have infinite time. We'll see how the Bible affirms that. Not only affirms it, but suggests that you need to keep it in mind. You see, one of the aspects of youthful foolishness is the idea that, well, I don't really see how I'm ever going to die. I'm going to live forever. i got all the time in the world to do whatever and, and fulfill all these dreams. As we get older, we start to see the effects of time on our bodies. We start coming in contact with the idea that, yeah, this body's not going to last me forever. I don't have all the time in the world. And generally, correlated to age, the older you get, the more you come to embrace this idea that my time is finite. But the Bible teaches that, and it teaches that you should keep that in mind. Time, as one of those things that has been given to you by God, requires stewardship. That means you have to manage the time that you're given. And this is where a lot of us have trouble. And we'll talk about that a little bit, what the Bible says about the stewardship of time. There is bad stewardship of time. One of the best examples of that in the Bible is how the Bible talks about laziness or people who are sluggards. That's a very commonly used word in the old Bible. Well, that's just misusing time or presuming that you have more time than you actually do. And the Bible talks a lot about that bad stewardship of time, but it also teaches some things about the good stewardship of time. How do you make good use of the time you have? It also teaches some things about the proper timing of things, right? There are seasons for this and seasons for that. And I'm sure you all realize what passage I'm making reference to, but I want to pull a couple of observations out of that. 
it's not always the right time to do each and everything, right? And we have to recognize that. And in some sense, we kind of have to reconcile ourselves to it. I'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into that. So let me try to cover those and we'll see how far we get. Hopefully we'll get through all those today. I'm going to start in Psalm 90. And I'll probably read this in its entirety here because I think it's important. I'm really going to focus in on verses 10 through 12. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now, we learn something about time there as it relates to God, and that is that God is not bound by time. See, He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is ever-existent. He is the author of time. He's the creator of time as we know it, the linear time that we live in. But He transcends it and is infinitely larger than the span of time that formulates human history. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. This shows that from God's perspective, He does not consume or observe time in the same frame of reference that we do. Because He is from everlasting to everlasting, He is not confined by time the way we are, and He doesn't view it or experience it or feel it the same way that we do, right? We might say, you know, it's been many years since I graduated from high school or something like that. And, and that may seem like, well, that was a long time ago. Well, God doesn't see it as a long time ago. It doesn't confine Him in that way. He doesn't have to think of it as long or short time. It is, I'm over time and I'm the Lord of time, if you will, right? So He's not confined by it. And so He views it differently than we do. By the way, I think that's probably one of the reasons that we think God is tarrying so often. Like if you're praying about something and you, we want immediate gratification and deliverance on whatever thing we're going through, and God has His timing, and you might say, well, I prayed for that for 10 years before I got any deliverance in it. That was a long time. And God's looking at it and saying, no, that was the right amount of time, and it wasn't that long, right? So maybe our perception of time and God's being outside of time and over time and the Lord of time gives us some erroneous perspectives on what God's timing is on some things. I'll just offer that for your consideration. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They are like the grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. That's the finiteness of human time, right? These people grow like grass, but it's not going to last forever. They have an end to their natural lives. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our ways are passed away, and thy wrath we spend our years as a tale that is told. Well, a tale has a start, a middle, and an ending. Otherwise, it's not a complete tale, right? So our lives are like a tale. They're going to have a beginning. There's going to be a bunch of stuff that happens in the middle, and they're going to come to an end. And that's kind of how our lives are and how we consume time in our natural lives. But look at verse 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. The days of our years are threescore and ten. That's 70 years. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength 
labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. This is kind of making the point that if you looked at a bell curve of the ages of people and how long they live, it's typically, you know, into the 70s and 80s. Unless there is some sort of event that occurs, they get sick earlier, they're in an accident or something like that. You see a lot of people falling into that bell curve around that age group as the way of nature goes. But whether it's 70 or 80, and whether you have reason of strength or not, the point remains that your life is finite. It is not going to last forever. And by the way, it's filled with labor and sorrow, right? So it's not all a a rosy picture there. But the Bible tells you the truth, and uh, it's good that we know the truth. Verse 11, Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That statement makes it very clear that God's people are to recognize and affirm, I have a finite amount of time in this life and on this earth. Now, we don't know, are we going to live 70 or 80? I mean, Brother Thomas can say he knows, but most of us can't. A lot of us can't. It's true that you have a finite amount of time, and you're to be aware of that. I think that means that any time, if you look back in your life, I could say this when I was younger, and you had kind of total disregard for the fact that there's an end of my life out there, and I'm living in a way that says, I don't know, that's way, it's not ever going to happen to me. That's what happens to those old people. I'm not an old person. I'm going to be young and healthy and fit all my life. If you're living in a way that ignores this reality, the finiteness of your existence, you're living in a foolish fashion. And it will incline you to foolish behaviors, right? That's what it means because it says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You've got to number your days if you're going to apply your heart unto wisdom in this way. You have to be mindful of the fact that I'm not going to be here forever. God has given me a certain number of days. The time that I have is a gift of God. You did nothing to acquire that time, did you? You didn't do anything to acquire your natural life. God, it's a gift from God. You didn't do anything to acquire your spiritual life. And the time that you have to manifest those things, that's a gift from God as well. And so to be wise about it, you have to keep that in mind. You can't think, I'm going to live forever. Or this is not ever going to apply to me. It says number your days. Well, if you take the math on 70 to 80 years, you know, it's less than 30,000 days. Somewhere between 25,000 and 29,000 days. Have you ever thought about your life in terms of how many days you've got? I mean, this is speaking in terms of the bell curve here, right? This is the way most people are living in their 70s and 80s, you know, unless there's an accident or some people have... Years beyond that, some people live to be 100 and older. But generally speaking, if you're talking about the general numbers across the population, you're talking about people who have between 25,000 and 29,000 days on this earth. I suspect most people have not ever done the math on that. They've never really thought about, what does that mean in terms of days, right? And every day I'm checking one of those 25 to 29,000 days off. 
We don't know what the exact number is, but the fact that there is a number tells us that it's finite. See what I'm saying? Our days on this earth are numbered, and it is a finite number. And that means if you have a finite amount of something, you got to manage it. And you got to manage it from a standpoint of also not only knowing that they're finite, perhaps recognizing that this day might be my last day on earth. It's entirely possible. So hopefully that puts your thinking in the realm of time into a different place. We shouldn't presume that we have more of it than we do. And we should regard time as a more precious, finite commodity than maybe we do. Now, there's a little bit of tension that crops up in this because you can say, well, what about planning? Don't you have to plan for things in the future? I've got a son and I think maybe he might need to go to college in a few years and don't I need to plan for that? Maybe I need to save some money or, you know, there's these sorts of things that are further out than what is there today. And I think it is perfectly reasonable and necessary that people do that sort of planning. But there's a cautionary word when it comes to planning, which is once you step over into the realm of believing this is absolutely and certainly going to come to pass and within my power, you're in that realm of starting to ignore the fact that your time is finite and you don't know when the end may be coming. So we do plan and we think about things. It's prudent to do that. But we should do it in the context of faith, recognizing this could be my last day. And what I have right now, I need to be making the most of it. So I think those things can be reconciled, provided we don't go to an extreme on what our plans and designs for the future truly are. To keep us moving, I'm going to skip the rest of that. Let's jump over into Ephesians chapter 5. And let's look at this idea of the stewardship of time. So time is a finite commodity that we're given by God, and we need to manage it as such. I'm going to look starting in chapter 5 and verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. So this is the beginning of an exhortation. Wake up here, people. There's some stuff that you need to do. And this deals directly with the management of time. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This is specifically talking about the idea that time is passing us right on by. Every single day, every moment you're sitting there, and if you think there's some things I need to do today, the longer you sit there and don't do them, you are missing Another second, another minute, another hour of opportunity to get the thing done that you need to get done. So you need to redeem that time. I know when I was very young, and it was a struggle all through my young adult life, I kind of developed a habit of procrastination, which is really the expression of that foolishness, right? Where you think, well, I got time to do that. I can remember times when my dad said, well, when I get home from work, you better have the, you know, the, the garage painted. We paint the interior of the garage every so often. And then I'd sleep in a little late. He's at work. And I'd get up. Well, I could do this for a little while. Well, he doesn't come home till 5 o'clock. Right? You know where this goes because some of you have probably been in the procrastination game a little bit. And you realize it's getting about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you hadn't hit a lick on painting the garage 
And then you're out there, you know, kind of in a panic, trying to slop paint on the wall. You're doing a terrible job. And then when dad gets home, you got it about 70% done and, and it probably wasn't done very well. And that all arises from this foolish notion that I got plenty of time to get this done. And as I became an adult and took on more responsibilities, I started realizing that each parcel of time in a day is so finite and goes by you so quickly that if you don't completely flip that model over on its head, you're not going to get everything done that you need to get done. Because when you're a kid, it might just be painting the garage. But when you have a family and you've got all these responsibilities, you probably have every single day of your life a half dozen to a dozen things that need to get done. You know, I need to file my taxes. I need to I need to go, uh, you know, register my cars, and then I've got to go out here and sign up for this thing and that thing, and then I've got the work I've got to do at work, and that's got eight tasks on it, and then, you know, I've got a, a situation, and I've got to fix some plumbing at the house. You've got all these things, and they're coming at you nonstop. So if you're taking that model that just says, I'm going to let it slide, I'll, I'll start hitting it a little early afternoon, maybe I'll start getting into this, you ain't going to get it done. And as you play that out over time, you're going to have a pile of stuff that you didn't get done, and then it's really going to be bearing down on you. That's where you start learning the lesson, by the way, that time is money. You start realizing, okay, now I don't literally don't have the time to do this thing. Maybe it's fix your leaky bathroom. There's a faucet in your bathroom. Now I don't have the time to do it. So how do you fix that problem? Well, I'm going to have to spend some money to get somebody else to do it because I don't have the time anymore. That's where you learn time is money. But you've got to flip the model of, of the procrastinating fool over on its head. And you kind of have to hit the ground running with a list of items to get done because the days are evil. They'll sneak up on you, and if you're kind of just taking it easy, you'll be at noon before no time. I mean, you can piddle around on the Internet, and all of a sudden you wake up, and it's noon, and, and you're like, man, I hadn't done anything. Now i got to get all this stuff done because I'm going to try to go to bed at some point, and, and i got all these things to do. We've got to think about time as something that needs some redemption. We have to claim it. We have to go out there and say, I've got these hours. I need to get busy with it and get after it. And to the extent that you're able to get after it early and put the most important things first and go after those things, you're going to find that by the end of the day, you may be tired and you may have done a lot and you may be exhausted, but you probably sleep a whole lot better. I have more trouble sleeping as a result of something being on my mind than I do anything else. And it has at times annoyed me that there's something I need to get done that I haven't gotten done. And now I'm going to bed and I'm thinking I've only got two more days to do this. That's very troublesome to me. And it bothers your sleep if you have that issue. So it's best to kind of stay on top of these things and be mindful of this. The days are evil. Have you ever thought about it? Think of it like this. That clock back there on the wall is conspiring against you. <laughs> it is. I mean, I'm trying to get a sermon done. I'm looking at it. I got, I've supposedly got about 20 minutes left. It's conspiring against me. It's saying, if you want to get these points done, you better get on it and get after it. Otherwise, you're going to run out of time here, right? So the days are evil, and you should think of time in that way. Time is kind of conspiring against me if I'm foolish in my stewardship of it. So it does require our stewardship. A couple pages over, you know, Paul kind of repeats himself in Colossians 4, 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. 
Now, if you just took that verse in that much, you'd be like, okay, walk in wisdom toward those that are without, right? Well, that means don't be running around like Deacon Jones out there, drinking on a Saturday night and running around on your wife and acting crazy. Well, I'm sure it means that. But look at specifically what he calls out here. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. That's the example he gives. Like if you want people to regard you as wise in how you're living your life as an example to others, you should be someone who's diligently about some profitable work, right? And it's important that we do that. Redeeming the time. You're going to have to buy it back, so to speak. Think of it as the clock is trying to constantly steal my time away from me and I better get after it if I'm going to get my portion of it and do it in service to the Lord. So time is finite and it's going to require our stewardship and we need to regard it as a precious commodity. Now there's a bad stewardship of time and we're going to look, maybe do a sampling here quickly of what Proverbs says about the foolish use of time. Let's look at Proverbs 6 and verse 6. This is talking about the sluggard. So I mean, I don't think anybody's going to stand up and say, I believe laziness is a Christian attribute. It certainly shouldn't be. Yet the Bible speaks of laziness so often that you have to begin to think, well, we're certainly prone to it. So I don't want to think that, well, I'm a Christian, so I can't possibly be lazy. No, you're a Christian and you most certainly can be lazy. And that's evidenced by the fact that the Bible talks about laziness a whole lot. So gives us an example. Chapter 6 and verse 6, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yea, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. That sounds pretty bad. And it is directly equating the idea of laziness to poverty. I've often said I'm against what is commonly preached in the world as the prosperity gospel. But I'm not willing to let go of the idea that there's not any prosperity in hearing the gospel or gospel truth as contained in the Word of God. If you can avoid laziness and being a sluggard and you are diligent about your work, this says you're going to avoid poverty in the matter, right? There's a whole lot of poverty in the world that is directly equated to laziness and people just presuming that I should be taken care of. I'm just going to, and and by the way, our society has in many ways enabled and encouraged this mindset. They have said, we're going to set up systems so that people who don't work and don't do as they ought and are tremendously irresponsible with how they use time, we're going to pay them for that. Now, that is a horrible incentive. You're incentivizing bad behavior when you do it. But it has kind of created a public ethos or ethic that is, you know, says, well, there's not really anything wrong with what's going on there. I don't deny that there are people who have legitimate need of poverty, but I do believe that there are ways that we have come to coddle laziness, and that's different. It's one thing to have charity upon the poor and those who are in need from a legitimate perspective. It's another thing to coddle and encourage 
abject irresponsibility. And we shouldn't confound the two just because we name some of those programs that they are to be for the poor. He points out the ant, which is amazing to me. Ants, not a creature that possesses the largest mind, to say the least. And yet, even the lowly ant can be diligent about some work that needs to be done. In other words, it's almost as though you can't say, well, I don't really have the ability to go work. I'm not smart enough to go work. Well, there may be some instances of that. However, I think the fact that the ant is used as an example is saying this is not a matter of mental power. This is not a matter of your intelligence. It's a matter of your wisdom. How do you apply the simple precepts that you know and are taught in the Word of God, irrespective of whether or not you have some brilliant mind? There's all sorts of work that needs to be done, and that runs all up and down the spectrum of how much mental energy is required to do it. And just because you say, well, I don't have the mind to be a, uh, a brain surgeon, does not mean that you don't, ha- you don't have sufficient capacity to manage the time you have and to be diligent about the work that's set before you. So that's one example. Let's look over in chapter 10, verse 26. Think about this one. As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. If you send some lazy person out to do a job, and you almost know. I've had times in my professional life where I'm managing people, and across my team I knew there's people who get it done and people who just can't. They're just not good at it for a variety of reasons. A lot of times because they're lazy. And you you send one of those persons over because there's something that needs to be done, say you need to do this, and you kind of know this is probably not going to turn out well. And when you find out, oh, they went and they did it, and they did a really terrible job, and now the customer's upset, and now you got to go fix the problem. Now you got to go do it twice. It's like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. It's like, come on, really? Is this where we are? Well, we don't want to be people who manage our time in such a way that we're thought of in that way. Turn over to chapter 13 and verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Those are shall verses, hard shall verses. You be diligent about your work. You're going to have what you need. You're going to be fat in those things. I don't think it means you're going to drive a Bugatti and have a mansion. You're going to have what you need, and you're going to have the spiritual blessings you need if you're in the house of God. But this idea that being lazy about stuff, and then you're going to be desirous too. I'm lazy. I'm not diligent about it, but I sure think I deserve the big mansion and whatever for whatever reasons. Those are objectionable, and part of why they're objectionable is because people have misused their time. They have spent it on laziness rather than spending it on something that would be more profitable. James talks about this. I mentioned the the idea of planning. If you look over in James chapter 4, he makes this statement. James is hard to find. He hides behind Hebrews. Sometimes I I have a hard time finding James. James chapter 4 and verse 13 He says this, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and we will buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. This is once again pointing out the finiteness of your existence and the reality that you say, I'm going to go do this tomorrow. I'm going to sell this stuff. This is our business plan. This kind of hits me. 
because I work a lot around business planning. We do business planning. What are we going to do next year? What are going to be the financial results of that? What about in two years or three years? What's our five-year plan? Well, we do think about things in this regard, and it's not saying that you should never think about planning in that way. You should, but there's an attitude in it where you think that it lies within you to do this, and you presume that God is going to uh, support you in that particular endeavor. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So once again, to be wise, you need to recognize the finiteness of your own life. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Right? This is why you hear us often say, Lord willing, I'll see you at church on Sunday. Lord willing, we'll have a church picnic. And I know we don't shoehorn that phrase into every single thing we talk about that's in the context of the future. And I don't really think that's what this passage is teaching, though it might be. <laughs> I think it's, it's primarily talking about the mindset of you need to recognize all of this is sort of not my will be done, but thy will be done. God's got a plan, and his plan may, and many times has, overridden and superseded my plan for how things ought to go, and I'm okay with that. That's where we have the most trouble, because we're usually not too okay with it. But that's kind of the mindset that should be there. And by the way, I think we should say, Lord willing. I like that practice. I think it reminds us, if nothing else, it is a reminder that this is all in God's plan. I've got my ideas, and this is what I intend to do, but Lord willing, I'll do that. And if He's not, then we're going to do what the Lord said, and that'll be okay. So that's a little bit of the bad stewardship of time when you presume to, uh, when you're lazy or when you presume that you're going to get things done and you haven't recognized that God's got to, it's got to be in God's will for that to come to pass. That would be a bad stewardship of time. But then there's the good stewardship of time. And we'll pick that up over in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And I'm going to shorten this down because I'm kind of running up on time. I'm not managing my time proper. Look out now. Physician, heal thyself. Verse 33, right? One of the main things that you need to keep in mind if you're going to manage time, and we do this all the time in my professional life, I generally start every day at work with a list. I use those 3M sticky notes that are about this big, and I write the date on it, and I write out a list of things I need to get done today. And I check them off as I do them. And at the end of that, I mean, I've got stacks of these things, and I can see that i got some stuff done over the course of the day and over the course of the last several years. I, I can know that. It's easy to lose sight of all that, by the way. But one of the things in that exercise of lining out what you need to do, once you've kind of come up with the raw list, it's important that you put it in the right order. Because as you can list out what you need to do over the course of the day, there are things that are of utmost importance and things that are not as important. So you want to put the first things first, and you want to make sure you're in addressing the most important things. And that way, at the end of the day, if you didn't do all eight things, if you did four, at least you did the most important four, right? And the four that carry over to the next day, well, that's maybe okay, because they weren't as important, right? So this principle of stack ranking, the things that you need to get done, is always important. 
And what I'm going to suggest to you is that you should always come up with that list and you should number it two through whatever. Two through whatever. Because there is a piece that is at the top of that that always sits there. And that is what Christ taught in Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now he's talking about all the material things that were up listed before. How am I going to be clothed? What am I going to eat? Those kind of things. Those things are going to be added unto you. But Jesus Christ has now taught there is a first line item here, and that's really where the kingdom of God deserves to be. Now, I suspect that by default we don't sort it that way, and I can admit that many times in my life I don't sort it that way. But that's to my detriment. It's got to be an absolute top priority in our lives, and I wonder sometimes if we don't experience a lot of spiritual malaise and we feel like, well, I just feel like the Lord is not as close to me as maybe He was at some other time. Well, how close are you to Him, right? Draw near to God and He'll draw near unto you is what the Bible says. So we can't heap all this on God if we are constantly sorting the seeking of God further down the list so that it's item number seven or eight and then it, well, we didn't get to that today, so it pushes over into next week. And you do that over and over again, and that's all of a sudden it's been six months of pushing that out and not addressing it first and all that stuff. And then you stand up and say, I feel as though the Lord has not been close to me of late. Well, who is the one is creating the gap? Is it God? Has God withdrawn from you? Or have we not sought God as the first things as we ought? We make progress in things that we apply time to and we commit time to. And uh, we know that to be true. There's any number of carnal things that we might be going after in our lives, whether it's an exercise plan or a, uh, you know, I'm trying to get a certification in this or I'm trying to get this uh, degree from someplace. And you realize that to achieve those things, you've got to apply time to them. They don't just fall upon you, right? But do we think that way about our own spiritual progress? And are we not making spiritual progress? Are we distancing ourselves from God because we just decide, there's really not a, I don't have time in my day. I mean, think about this. If you're constantly sorting it to the bottom of the list and it gets pushed out day, day after day after day, how is it going to be possible that you're going to do anything other than feel more distant from God? What if you did that to your own children? Your own family members, your spouse, your, if you just said, well, I didn't have time to, to do anything with them today, and I'll do that tomorrow. And you did it over and over and over again. What would it do to your relationship with your best friend or your wife or your children? Wouldn't it create more and more and more distance over time? I mean, I think any of us in that example would say, obviously it would, you know. There would be a point at which I'm so out of touch with what's going on with my son, I don't really even know what's going on in his life anymore because we haven't made our relationship a priority. Right? Now, you apply that to God, and maybe people get offended by it. Well, I don't know. I don't like this getting into my religion. My religion is a private thing, and I don't like to discuss it. Well, this is not a political speech, and this is the house of God and the family of God, and we need to talk about these things because they're real. We oftentimes distance ourselves from God because we don't apply the time to our spiritual lives that we ought. 
And that's often just a matter of prioritization. Well, I have several other things. I'll talk a little bit about, let's turn over here to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That seems uh, needful. Maybe we'll handle this as we close. When you think about the matter of time, there are seasons for things. Now, let me just read this to you first. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. There are different times and different seasons for different things. And one of the greatest sources of dissatisfaction among God's people is not accepting the time you are in. Now this could be applied across any number of these examples in here. But I'll give you one that kind of flies over the top of them. And I think it's one that most people experience. Young people tend to not embrace their youngness in many respects and say, I wish I was old enough to do this. I mean, an example from my childhood was when I was real little, I was a little kid. And even at my age, I was a little bit shorter than everyone else. And that meant if you're going to the state fair, you had to be so high to be able to get on the bumper cars. And I can remember thinking, I just wish I was old enough to be able to get on because my buddies were starting to get on and they're having fun and I was kind of left out. That was, that was depressing. Well, I just wish I could, I wish I was old enough to do that. Well, my brother goes off to college and he's kind of off having this exciting life and I'm back here, little rock, and I'm thinking, I wish I was old enough to be able to go off and go to college, you know. He gets married. Oh, I wish I was old enough to get married and have a wife. And you're constantly looking at something that, where I wish I was a little older so I could do this. And I think young people do this a lot. But I believe what this passage is teaching, among other things, is that you need to appreciate God's timing in things and appreciate the season of life that you're in. Don't constantly be trying to get to the next thing or hurry up to be old enough to do something like that. When you're young, enjoy being young. It goes by very quickly, and it's important that you enjoy it for what it is. There's a wonderful time when you are at home with your parents, and it's a relatively short period of time. I was thinking the other day, you know, I think about my life growing up with my brother, but the reality is I was only in that situation for uh, maybe 16 years, 15 or 16 years before he went off to college. And I'm going to be 55 years old. So the vast majority of my life, I haven't lived with my brother and my parents, you know. But boy, that period of time makes a real impression on you. And it goes by quickly. And there's a lot to enjoy in that time. I've often thought that if someone handed you a fast forward button for your life, no rewind, just a fast forward. Your life would probably be about three years long. <laughs> Honestly, because you would be thinking, we went to this movie. This movie's kind of boring. You know, I want to get out of here. There goes two hours. Okay, now we're leaving the movie. Oh, we're stuck in traffic. Man, stuck in traffic. It's going to take us an hour to get home. There's an hour. I mean, you'd be hitting that button. You'd be fast forwarding through all the mundane. To oh, I'm going to work this morning. Well, 
I'll tell you what, I'm lying there in bed, I got to get up, I'm going I'm to go to work, and then I'm not going to get home, I want to work late, it'll be like 7 o'clock by the time I get home. Okay, fast forward, now it's 7 o'clock. I mean, you'd be zipping through your days like it was nothing. You'd live about four years. Much of your life is doing mundane things that you might not think are all that important. And I think we often have disregard for the season we're in. I talked about young people. Old people do the same thing. I wish I was young again. I wish I could do this and that. I understand the sentiment in each of those circumstances. But you can't go back. And God has a purpose and a reason for you to be in that season. And it's not so you can go slam dunk a basketball or run five miles or whatever. It may be because you're supposed to be imparting wisdom to a generation that's younger than you and telling them of your life and showing them the examples of how the Lord has helped you in life and encouraging them along the way. Everybody's got a role in each of those seasons. And we can't change those seasons anyway. They spread out across time and we have to learn to appreciate them as they come at us and not try to jump from one season to another prematurely and not try to go back to seasons we can never recapture anyway. Well, I hope that's been a blessing to you. There is a time also for someone to be baptized. And I've been told time and again I need to be reminding everyone, we publish an open door to the church, and there's no time like the present if you'd like to come forward. Join the church by letter or baptism. We publish an open door. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.